got your Bibles right now, we are in 2 Peter. We are talking about this idea of thriving. How do you thrive in, even in the midst of difficulty? You know, difficulty a lot of times makes people bitter, angry, frustrated, kind of gets sour. Um, and the truth is, we're all going to face difficulties, right? Jesus even said to his followers, you know, in this world, you're going to have, you're going to have tribulation. So how is it that we can thrive, we can blossom, we can become the best version of ourselves? And that's what we've been looking at in this passage. In fact, I, I was reminded we didn't even take the time to look at verse 1, which is such a great verse. To those who have received a faith of the same kind of ours, by the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ, he starts with this whole idea, our salvation is rooted in Jesus, not our righteousness, but his. We did look at verses 2 and 3, that he has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. So everything that we need to thrive, even the most difficult times, God has already provided it. He's provided us promises. That's what we looked at last week in verse 4. These promises in which we can stand, we can stake our life. The fact that we've been forgiven, that we have eternal life, that he is with us, that he actually lives inside of us, that he's working all things to our good to make us more like Christ that we go through in this life. These are the promises that we have. Today, we're going to start with verse 5, and this is kind of an interesting piece. Because now he kind of turns to this idea of what our focus needs to be then in order to thrive. And uh, we're going to make it about halfway through verse 6. And then we'll come back next week and we'll finish it up. But for the sake of context, let's read verses 5 to 8 together, okay? 2 Peter 1 verse 5. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence... In your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. <clears throat> and in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing... They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me take that last phrase and put it in the negative because he kind of turns it to the negative. You won't be, you won't be fruitless. Or, and his whole point is that if these things are part of your life and they're growing, they're expanding, you're going to thrive. You're going to grow. You're going to blossom. You are going to become more like Christ because these are the very virtues of Christ. So as we start in verse 5, again, this little phrase, I don't want to throw it away, is now for this very reason. What's he referring to? Well, he's referring back to verse 4, that we, by these promises, have become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in this world, right? So we finished last week talking about how because of sin, this world is is corrupt, it's rotting, it stinks, it's in this devolution thing. But because, because of Jesus, because we've been set free, because we've been made new in Christ, we have this opportunity to thrive even in the midst of all of this. 
And if I could boil this whole passage down to one simple idea, one, one nugget of truth, what Peter is trying to say is this. Your ultimate thrive, no matter what you go through in this life, no matter how difficult, no matter how trying, no matter how tra traumatic, the ultimate thrive, the way that, that you do this and you come out of it every time, better than you were when you went in, is you become like Jesus, right? The ultimate best for your life is Christ-likeness. It's for you to continue to grow to become like Jesus because Jesus is the one who promised that he says, I come to give life and give it abundantly. That's kind of how we started this whole series. Life to the full. Jesus lived life to the full. He was a man on mission. He was a man of purpose. He accomplished all the Father. He, he's the one who knows how what we were created to do. He knows the things that bring peace. He knows the things that bring satisfaction. He knows the things that bring significance and security to our hearts. The best way to thrive is to become like Jesus. And we see that even in our salvation. For when we were saved, what did he do? Well, we just were reminded. He gave us a new nature, right? We become sharers of the divine nature. And by divine nature, it doesn't mean his deity, what it means is his holiness, his character. You know, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 puts it like this. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creature, a new creation. Old things have passed away. New things have come. Romans 6 tells us the same thing, that when we came to, to faith in Christ, that we, our old man died, and now we've been raised in a new life. A new life that doesn't have to live according to the corruption of this world. And that what we were saved for is actually for this transformation. R Romans chapter 8 puts it like this. For those he foreknew, he predestined that they would become conformed to the image of Christ. That's what he wants to do in our life. That's how we thrive. Is that through all that we walk through, we lean into Jesus. We grow in our relationship with Christ. Jesus lives through us, remember? Because he lives inside of us. And he's changing us. And, and instead of allowing us to become bitter, we become better. We become sweeter. We become more compassionate. We become more loving. Because his spirit is working in us to make us more like Jesus. That's exactly the transition here. Now, for this very reason, that the best way to thrive in the midst of difficulty is to become like Christ. It's to allow him to use the difficulties in our life to push us to him. In fact, I've come to believe that everything that we face in this life, the good, the bad, the difficult, the traumatic, you know, because he holds us in the palm of his hand, so everything has got to pass through him. And I think the reason that we face what we face is because he is pushing us to himself. He is molding us into the image of Christ. And as we lean into Jesus, as we walk through these difficult times, he is in that process of helping us thrive because he's helping us become more like Christ. Now, 
So for this very reason, he says this, applying all diligence. There's a, there's a responsibility that we have in this. And the responsibility now that we have, remember, he's given us everything that pertains to life and godliness, right? He's given us these precious and magnificent promises on which we can stand, right? But what Peter is reminding us is that in this process of sanctification, of becoming like Christ, we have some responsibility here. And our responsibility is to give it our best effort. This idea here of applying means to bring alongside, to bring besides. Besides what you have, this is what we've got to introduce. Diligence has the idea of haste. It has the idea of urgency, focus, intentionality, uh, the idea of, of really being focused on what we are called to do. Now, to be honest with you, you know, I've preached this truth for years and years and years, and to be honest with you, I get sometimes Christians push back at me because they say, well, wait a minute. What do we have to do to, to work to earn our salvation? And the answer is nothing, right? Jesus paid it all. You know, there's nothing we can add. It's, it, it, he, he did it all. All we have to do is believe. And so their sense is, is that then, well, to become like Christ, if he's, if he's already given us everything that pertains to life and godliness, then, then it's just going to be his work and he's going to accomplish it. And yet what the word of God tells us is no, yes, salvation completely of Christ. But sanctification, this process, God is at work, but we're called to be at work too. In fact, I was thinking of the verse in Philippians that sometimes gives people a difficult time. It says, so then, my beloved, now that you have always obeyed, not just in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation. Now, some people look at that and go, well, wait a minute. We're told our salvation is not of works. Well, what you got to understand is the Greek word for salvation is deliverance. And depending on the context in which it's used, it can, it can refer to justification, that we have been saved, we have been justified. That is the work of Christ alone. The word when he uses it here means deliverance, but it's not from, from, you know, our sin and slavery. If you read the book of Philippians, Paul's already established these people know Jesus. What he's talking about is he's talking about sanctification. They, they are going through a hard time. Paul's in jail. His whole point here is we got to live this out, right? We got to become more like Christ. Even in our difficulties, we have got to continue to live like Jesus. Jesus would. That's what he's talking about there, sanctification. Truth of the matter is the same word deliverance is sometimes used then ultimately of that day when we're delivered to heaven. It's about our glorification. But Paul's whole point there is that we've got to work out our salvation. This is our sanctification, becoming like Christ. In fact, if you look back in 2 Peter, uh, if you got your Bibles, you flip over a page, at least a page in my Bible, chapter 3, verse 14, he uses the same idea and actually the same word. He says, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, and he's been talking about Jesus coming back, the new heaven and new earth, he says, be diligent. 
Remember, focus, intentional. Be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. There's worth. I, I think this is also what Paul has in mind in Galatians chapter 6 when he's talking to believers. He says, let us not lose heart in doing good. Well, doing good is effort, right? That's what we're called to do. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. And he says this, for in due time we'll reap if we don't grow weary. Well, what does weary imply? Weary implies, man, it's work. It's hard work. It's effort. And so what Peter is trying to say here is that as believers, those who have come to faith in Christ, yes, God has already supplied all we need that pertains to life and godliness. He's already blessed us with every spiritual blessing. But now this is this, this joint effort that we are to supply, which is the next word he uses here, to your faith supply moral excellence. We are to bring, we are to effort, we are to work hard to see these virtues of Christ grow and be demonstrated in our life. Now I love that word supply. Again, it's kind of a classical Greek word and had the idea of um, like choir master or one I was more familiar with is the idea of a stage master. All right, so when I was in high school, uh, did a lot of drama. Do we have any other thespians from there? All right, cool, cool, right? Act well, thy part. Okay, anyway... uh, and so to me, the idea of the stage master is really important. Stage master is, is always a part of every production, drama production there is. You just never see them. They're never technically on stage during the performance. But their job is to supply everything on that stage that is needed. So from backdrops to furniture to uh, you know, I, I, so in uh, my sophomore year of high school, we did the Diary of Anne Frank. I was Peter the boyfriend, right? And actually a pretty good Peter, if I, to be honest with you. I'd like to be humble, but got to be honest. And uh, one of the things, if you've ever seen the, or read the book, uh, seen the movie, or better yet, seen it live on stage, uh, is Peter had a cat by the name of Moochie. So the stage master is trying to find a cat for us. And we did, I don't know, like 13, 15 performances of this thing. There's only a couple problems. Uh, number one, Steve doesn't like cats. And number two, cats don't like Steve. So uh, it actually, about this time, one of my really good friends, uh, they found a stray cat. And uh, the cat sometimes could tolerate me. So it was always interesting in the midst of the lights down, you know, and the scene changes and, you know, out would come this cat and this cat would be hissing at me and scratching at me and I'd be petting it like I really liked this dumb thing. And, uh, but that was the stage master. That's what they were responsible for, keeping the cat alive backstage, you know, all between all these performances. Or like when we had uh, the scene right before the intermission was the Hanukkah scene. So if you're familiar with the story, some people broke in. They were living up in the, uh, 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 kind of in the attic. And some people broke into the store below and they heard a noise. It's ultimately what got them found. And it all happened in, in the way that when they were having this Hanukkah scene. And uh, 
And so they're drinking tea, sitting around the table, lighting the candles. And uh, the one performance, as I'm bringing the tea up to my mouth, is one of the good reasons I have a big nose. It works very effectively. The smell hits me. This is not tea that is in this cup. This is prune juice. That was the stage masters. They were responsible to supply everything that was needed for the performance. This is what Peter's trying to say. Now for this very reason, the fact that the way you thrive is to become like Jesus. Applying all diligence, this is your responsibility. Add to your faith, which by the way, where do we all start with Jesus? Faith, right? That's where it all begins. Faith. Jesus paid it all. We put our faith in him. That's where it all begins. So every Christian starts with faith. So what he says now is add to your faith. And what we're going to be adding are these virtues of Christ, which again, he lives inside of us. He's already provided it. But what we've got to do is we've got to work hard to make sure that there's a lavish supply of this that is growing in our life. The first thing he says here is this, add to your faith moral excellence. I I would redefine it just a little bit of moral heroism is the best way I could put it. This idea that we're living for something bigger. You know, that's the thing that a hero does. You think about the heroes in our military that are willing to, you know, put their country and the freedoms that we have above everything else and go and put their lives on the line. Those are real heroes. You think in history, you think of George Washington who, you know, could have set himself up as king but, but set aside his own stuff because he saw something greater. Uh, you know, you think in, in the world that most of us lived, uh, you know, the comic book heroes that we, we lived with, Batman, right? You know, he's got to live incognito, not let anybody know, but he's there to protect Gotham. It was bigger than him. Well, the reality is the greatest hero who ever lived, Jesus, right? Jesus, I mean, think about it. Jesus didn't leave the glories of heaven and come and, you know, to forever be united with human flesh because he wanted a vacation. He was looking for a break. No, he came because there was a, there was a greater reason. There was a, he, he could look, I love the way the, the writer in Hebrews puts it. He said, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him. You know, Jesus wanted to to have relationship with us. Jesus looked ahead to that day when we would believe and have relationship. I think it even looks even ahead of a day that still has not come when we will all be in his presence. And because of that, that that, that was far more important to him than his own personal comfort and safety. He came, and what did he do? He endured the cross. He put up with the shame. He was a hero. And what we're called to is we're called to add to our faith this moral heroism that we don't live for ourselves anymore. We live for Jesus, right? We live for that day when we will go stand before him. We talk about it, a living on mission. 
we, we understand that our life here and all that, that is, it's about you know, following after Christ. It's living Jesus with our life, sharing him with our lips, even in a world that doesn't want to hear about it. Moral heroism. That's what we're called to do. To live for something that's far greater than me. A day that is way off in the distance. But it's a day when it's really going to matter as we go into eternity. Add to your faith moral heroism. Moral excellence. Then he says to the moral excellence we are to add knowledge. I would uh, define that as this idea of spiritual wisdom. Uh, So hang with me here. Jesus is truth, right? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the one who understands more clearly than anybody reality. He's the light, correct? When, the, when, when Satan came and tempted, and by the way, Satan's a liar. And here's the thing about him being a liar. I think we all know that. But most of us have, most of our dealings have been with bad liars, I mean, you could kind of tell. I mean, if you're a parent, you know, kids are like the worst liars, right? They, they, they tell on themselves, you know. It's on their face, their whole body, you know. You're like, you're, you're not telling me the truth, right? And, and so I think we get this idea that Satan's, you know, he's a liar, but, you know, we can all see it. No, no, he's a really, really, really good liar. So Jesus is the truth. Satan is a liar. Eve and Adam listened to the lie. Sin, right? What did sin do? It it corrupted their whole life. They lose a son who gets murdered by their other son. it, It just creates all these problems because that's what sin does. So Jesus comes into this world. One of the pictures that we have in Scripture, in fact, Jesus even says, I'm the light of the world, right? He comes into the darkness. Darkness, we can't see truth. We don't know reality. We're trying to figure it out. We're trying to feel our way around. But Jesus is the light. You know, he turns on the light. You can see. Then we become the children of God, and now we can begin to see. And now we can begin to see what really counts, what's really important, what real is. And he's given us his word that kind of plays it out for us and lets us know, okay, this is how you live. I mean, you even think about this. What, what Peter's telling us, what the word is telling us, what Jesus told us is, you want to live your best life? Follow after Jesus with your whole heart. Walk after Jesus. Become Christ-like. You want to thrive. You want to become the best version of you. Follow Jesus. Make him the number one priority of your life. And yet you and I live today in a culture that says, no, 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 no. You got to find yourself, right? You got to figure yourself out. And you need to just do with what you think will make you happy. And to be honest with you, it's a lie. It destroys people's lives. That's why the alcoholism is going through the roof and drug addiction and broken relationships. It's a lie. So we have the truth. We can see reality. What we've got to do is we have to grow in our, our knowledge. We, we need this ample supply to look at life 
and understand that our culture, remember he's just talked about that we've escaped the corruption, the rot, the stench of this world. But the, but the stench is out there. It's all around us. And if we're not careful, I mean, really, this whole thing is the idea that it's a battle for our mind. And that's why we got to grow in knowledge. Remember what Jesus said in John 8? If you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth, reality, and the truth will set you free. But Satan doesn't want you to know the truth. Even as a child of God, he wants it cloudy. He wants it. And that's why Paul later says, and I love this verse, we are destroying speculations in every lofty thing. Because you know what? Satan's a good liar. He's a good liar. He makes it sound so rich, so real. This is, oh, it's so loving, so kind. Every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We lay it down next to the truth. Now, let me tell you something, and let me share something with you that doesn't set well in any culture. People are broken, but the reality is we're all broken, right? You know, this might be their thing, may not be mine, but I've got my stuff, right? We're all broken. But the reality is, the way you overcome your brokenness is you lean into Jesus. He forgives it and he fixes it. In fact, the cool thing about what Jesus does is so often your biggest point of brokenness is going to become your biggest point of blessing others as he brings you out the other side. The more you become like Christ, that's the way you're going to thrive. That's the way you're going to blossom. But the world doesn't want to hear it. And I'll tell you, you look at especially, and I don't not exactly 100% sure why, but it seems like Satan from the moment that Jesus made Adam and Eve, and remember he created them in their image and he created them male and female, Satan has attacked sexuality. He's attacked marriage. He's attacked the roles. I mean, really, when you get to the garden piece, uh, the, the whole Eve was there, Adam was there, Adam did, I mean, it was all about roles. That's what he attacks. And all of that is under attack today, right? This whole idea of marriage and, and that in fact it's between one man and one woman. The reality is that sex, God created sex and it was to be enjoyed in marriage alone. And our world says, no, 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 man, just go wherever you want. This whole idea of identity, you know, and trying to figure out, you know. It will, no, God said he made us male and female. But today, all of that is perceived as unkind, unloving, narrow, bigoted. I mean, think about it. We believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation, correct? There is no other name given among, under heaven among men whereby you must be saved. Only the name of Jesus. But today that is perceived as bigoted, narrow-minded, mean, unkind. And I've been watching something, and this is not, again, not political because this isn't about what's just happening now. This has been happening for the last couple of years, but the one thing I just want to warn you about is I think our culture is moving to a point where as a church and as the children of God who stand in truth, the knowledge, 
the wisdom, and we speak truth. Why? Why do we speak truth? Because that's how you love people. If you tell somebody who's messing up their life and they're they're doing a harmful thing, you know, it's like having a little kid playing with knives, and you go, oh, isn't that sweet? Here, play with this one too, right? You don't do that. You love them. You say, no, you take it away. We speak truth. We want to speak it in love. You know, we, we understand you got brokenness. I got brokenness, right? But what you're doing is hurting you. Just like when I follow my brokenness, it hurts me. The way you thrive is to know Jesus and lean into him. I think we're coming to a day when, when quite honestly, uh, that'll probably be deplatformed. What do you mean by that? Well, we, we may not be able to have a live stream. We may not be able to put our sermons up. We may have people that show up and protest, might even come into our service. I think there's a really good chance that, you know, the whole 501c3, you know, you give to a church, you give to this kind of a church, it's not going to, they're, they're not going to give you a tax uh, deduction for it. I think it's coming. Question is, how do we respond? Do we get angry? Do we get mad? Well, wait a minute. We got to thrive through it, right? Well, what did Jesus do? Well, when he was reviled, what did he do? He didn't revile back. He didn't get angry. He loved people, but he continued to speak truth. And, folks, what we got to understand here is that to our moral heroism... Right? And it's not that we get proud because that's a whole other thing. Oh, look at us. You know, we're being, no, 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 no. We're living for that day and we're going to speak truth because we love people. We want everybody to know that, that the best life lived is knowing Jesus and following him with his whole, your whole heart. Sin's going to hurt you. It does every single time. And we're going to walk in knowledge and we're going to try to live like Jesus, who is both full of grace and full of truth. I got one. Oh, boy. Okay. Uh, real quickly, one last one, and I'll be done. To our spiritual knowledge, our spiritual wisdom, we're to add this idea of self-control. The word self-control has the idea, and I always want to say this right, so let me, let me look at it. It's basically this idea of holding oneself in. It's discipline. You know, Jesus was the most self-controlled person that ever lived. And you, you see it. You see it in his compassion. You see it in the way that, you know, somebody even came up as well. You know, he, he was pretty harsh with the, the Pharisees, and he was at times. And, and, but yet you see the fact that he had taught them and he had tried to explain truth. They had rejected. The loving thing now is to get harsh, to get them to know that, man, this is serious. Self-control. You know, passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 where Paul says this, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control. You know, someone's going to run the race, man. They got to work. They got to train. This is hard work. And again, this isn't about salvation. This is about sanctification. This is about the idea living for that day when we stand before Jesus. He says, and they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. He says, so therefore I run 
in such a way as not without aim. And I box in such a way that I'm not just beating the air, but I'm disciplining my body. I'm making it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. And again, he's not talking salvation. He's talking about living for that day, self-control, discipline, setting those disciplines into our lives so that we are leaning into Jesus so that we're growing in our knowledge, that we're continually reminding ourselves to live for that day, the spiritual heroism, self-control. So here's the thing. It all starts with faith. If you've not come to put your faith and trust in Jesus, that's where it begins. It always begins there. Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin so you could be forgiven, so your brokenness could be healed and that he can use that now to bless others, to come to live inside of you. And then once he does, you have the opportunity to know him, to walk with him, and now his spirit lives inside of you. And he will be working to make you into the image of Christ. And we get to participate in that work as we are diligent to add the spiritual heroism. We've got to live for that day. To add the knowledge, to understand the word of God and what is real and what is true. And self-control.